The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, so we are going today to get to um, John Owen's classic on the mortification of sin and believers. Uh, But I still want to do some more work. We have been working patiently through the book of Romans. And honestly, if you had a choice as a mentor on mortification between the Apostle Paul and John Owen, who would you choose? I hope you would make the right choice. Uh, And if you would have a a choice, you could only have one book to study on mortification, on sanctification, what would you choose? The book of Romans or John Owen on the mortification of sin and believers? However, he is a great teacher. He gives us some good insights, and I think probably two-thirds of our time today we'll be able to spend on some of his insights. But we're getting there. We're moving up because his his launch verse, his jump-off verse is Romans 8.13. And as we have been walking patiently through Romans 6 on into 7, we just began to get into Romans chapter 8. So let me give you again a a brief review of where we have been in Romans. I think it's just good to understand the foundation that we have. Honestly, I believe that the proper understanding of and connection between justification and sanctification in the Christian life is the essence of the gospel ministry. It's the essence of good pastoral ministry. If, if I'm muddy in my mind on those things, I will not be clear with you folks. If you don't fully understand justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, and then the sanctification that follows, then you're not going to understand the Christian life. You're going to have all kinds of problems. And so we need to just, and there is no book uh, in the Bible better for explaining that than the book of Romans. So Romans makes very plain in Romans 1 through 3, the universality of sin culminating in that very famous uh, statement, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or a few verses before it, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned aside, they've together become worthless, there is no one who does good not even one. Universality of sin. And then in that same chapter, the provision made once for all, as the author of Hebrews tells us, through the death of Jesus, the provision made by by God through his son. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. That we receive righteousness as a gift, a free gift by faith in Christ. That's justification. And then he expands on that in Romans 4. He gives illustrations from the life of, um, of uh, Abraham. Uh, what did Abraham discover in this matter? If Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's solid foundation. I can't say it enough. Uh, because sanctification, friends, is hard work. There is a responsibility you have to mortify the deeds of the flesh. And we're going to talk about that a lot. But if you don't understand the solid rock of justification under your feet, the solid rock of imputed righteousness, positional righteousness, you're going to get it wrong. You're going to mortify like the the Catholic monks would do by beating, literally beating their bodies and wearing hair shirts and doing extended fastings and all the stuff Martin Luther did before he discovered the gospel. You're going to do all these kinds of things or you'll you'll do nothing or you'll have your own rhythms or patterns for self-torture. Um, And those things are not mortification. So you just need to understand justification by faith. It's the greatest truth we'll ever hear, that because Christ died 
And because he rose again, we have forgiveness, we have life through, through his blood. And that's what he teaches in Romans chapter 4. It says the same thing about David. David writes it in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. And he just unfolds that in Romans 4. Then he gives you assurance of salvation so beautifully in Romans 5, 1 through 12. We can just walk through that again, but I won't. But there's the, the, the section of, of assurance. There, you know, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a, a status, a position of peace that nothing will ever change. It doesn't improve. It doesn't get worse. It'll be the same throughout all eternity. From the moment you're justified on, God is at peace with you, and you're at peace with God, positionally. And it's just good to know that. And we have access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's just all these words of assurance. And then he gives us the two Adams. The, uh, through, through the first Adam, we receive sin and death. And, uh, you know, in Adam, everybody sinned. And in Adam, everybody dies. And that's what makes Easter so awesome, isn't it? Because we understand that. We've seen death around us, and we know that we're dying. And so the fact that today we're celebrating not just Jesus' resurrection, but our ultimate resurrection from the grave, how awesome is that? That's why I picked uh, John 11 to preach from today, because uh, as we see Lazarus' resuscitation, not really resurrection, but resuscitation, that's a sign of our future resurrection in, in resurrection bodies. How wonderful is that? That's a celebration for all of us. But uh, in, in the first Adam, we receive sin and death and the grave. In the second Adam, we receive something infinitely uh, more powerful. We receive life forever through Christ. And then that begins the sanctification section of, uh, of the uh, book of Romans. So Romans 6 through 8, those chapters are the sanctification guidebook for all Christians. And we've been walking through them. I don't want to go through it, but Romans 6 is the key chapter. We need to understand. We need to know that we should not go on sinning so that grace may increase. May it never be. We should increasingly be hating sin. And we should recognize the spiritual union between us and Christ. We died with Christ. It's decisive. It's done. If you're a Christian, you died with Christ to sin forever. And sin shall not be your master. You're not under law. It's a whole decisive break made with your old life. You're a new creation in Christ, he says in 2 Corinthians 5. It's a decisive break. And you should consider yourself that way. You should think of yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so think about that. And then you should understand that, that the uh, old man was put to death, done forever. Who you were in Adam is dead if you're a Christian. And you're now a new creation in Christ, but you still have this thing called the body of sin. <clears throat> the mortal body, the seat of wicked passions, the seat of, of sinful tendencies and habits. And that doesn't go away uh, because, you know, at, at a Chick-fil-A, you bowed your head with an evangelist and prayed a prayer, a real prayer of asking and calling on the name of the Lord. Incredible what did happen, but there's some things that didn't happen. You're still in that same body. And you got all those habits and all that wiring and all those lusts and tendencies, and you got to fight that. And so the old man was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be increasingly rendered powerless. Romans 6 6. So little, little by little, we're going to be starving sin habits. Can never fully kill them. Can never decisively say, I'll never sin in that or this or the other way again. Never. That will never happen. You should not expect that to happen. 
But I think it could happen, I think it has happened, that godly people have so decisively mortified patterns of sin that from a certain point until the day they actually died, they never did sin in that area again. I think that's happened many times. Now, it's not true that they didn't sin in other areas, but I think there are some sin habits that you can decisively put to death, and it's well worth doing. And the more of those things you can put to death, the more fruitful you're going to be, the more uh, happier you're going to be, the better Christian witness you're going to be. In every respect, mortification, that's what we're talking about here. But Romans 6 teaches you that. Uh, it tells you that you've got to learn new habits. That's the word I put to it, but I think it, you know, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to wickedness and ever-increasing wickedness, the, the, the snowball rolling down the hill of wickedness, he's speaking to pagans who lived in Rome and who had old pagan patterns of lifestyle. Remember how it used to be? Romans. And then when the gospel came and you believed, you started developing new habits by presenting your members to God as instruments of righteousness and ever-increasing holiness, that's sanctification. So that's Romans 6. Then in Romans 7, getting more to the middle of the chapter on, he says how hard that's going to be. It's going to be very, very hard for you. You know it. You, know it. you already know it's true. You've been Christian for many years. It's like, why is it this hard? Both negatively and positively. Why is it so hard for me to break bad habits? And, and positively, why is it so hard for me to expand good habits? To have an ever-increasing and improving prayer life. To have a heart that's just more and more filled with the Spirit and more and more delighting in worship. Why is that so hard for me? Why is it hard for me to evangelize? I know I ought to do it. Why do I have such a hard time doing it? The very thing, the good thing I want to do, I don't do. Conversely, the very thing I hate, I do. So he wrestles with that and effectively says, as long as you're in this mortal body, you're going to be struggling. It's going to be a hard fight, and you need to be recognized. You need to realize that. It's going to be very hard. Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God is going to rescue you someday. Isn't that awesome? I just talked a minute ago to F.J. Melton. He was sitting there waiting for Damien's class, Bible study to start. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I love that brother. And, and I came and said, how are you doing? He said, I'm all right. I'm all right. I said, I'm 91. <laughs> so I, I'm not expecting a lot. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, I, I've got pain every day. I said, but isn't it wonderful to know that for you, even physically, the best is yet to come? I mean, you're going to be raised in a resurrection body. It's going to be glorious. You're going to be filled with, with energy and power. You're, it's going to be raised in power. And you're never going to feel any more pain again. Isn't that awesome? He's like, it really is. That was just a brief conversation I had on my way here. But uh, it's just such a, a, a good uh, uh, thing. But we need to be realistic. That's all I'm saying. Romans 7 is a healthy dose of realism. And it's wrong to think that Paul's speaking there in his pre-conversion state. That doesn't really do us a lot of good as Christians now in our post-conversion state. To know that Paul's saying... And I think it proves when he says twice, no longer. It is no longer I who do it. It's no longer I who sin, but it's sin living in me that does it. There's a decisive break between me and sin. And he's not denying that he did it. He said that unkind thing. He failed to do this. He understands that he did it, and he's taking responsibility. He's saying, that's not who I am. It's not who I am. Who I am is someone who delights in God's law. And, and I delight in the, in the glory of God I see, in the, in the expectations. Yeah, I want to do it, but I just can't seem to carry it out. So that's Romans 7. Now we get to Romans 8. And so let's walk through it a little bit, and then we'll get to Owen's stuff.
All right, I've given you a Q&A sheet that I did for a Bible study. I, we're not going to just walk through those questions, but it's for your own future study, just questions to ask about Romans. I just want to focus on the text. And you've got that there on the sheet. Could someone read Romans 8, 1 through 4? All right, there is so much theology in here, and I don't know that we can walk through it, but let me just say one thing. Do you see by the number of times he mentions the word law, that the law seems to be a bigger deal for God and for Paul than it is for us? And it's like, yeah, the law, you know, Ten Commandments, all that, yeah. You are grossly underestimating how important the moral law is to God. But what he says is there is no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What do those words mean to you? There's no condemnation. Yeah, I mean, without, without Christ the mediator, without Christ the atoning sacrifice, what would happen? Yeah, second death, lake of fire. Righteous, on what basis? The law. The law would stand up and accuse you. Say, this was God's expectations, positively and negatively. This is what he wanted you to do. This is what he wanted you not to do. And he's very clear. There's, there's positive and negative. There's sins of omission, sins of commission. Negatively, he wanted you to not murder, to not commit adultery, to not you know, have any other gods, to not have idols. He wanted all the negatives. For the most part, Ten Commandments is negative, prohibitions. Just like in the garden, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of an evil. That's a prohibition. But then positively, as Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart, every moment of your life, you shall love your neighbors yourself. And we haven't done it. That, that law is the basis of our condemnation. That it's the basis of what God will righteously do in condemning people to hell. It's, it's not for no reason, not capricious. It's because people broke the law. And this is the penalty, the wages of sin, the wages of breaking that law is death, eternal death. But now look what it says. Therefore, there is now, I love that word now, decisively now, now that Jesus has come. That's really what we're talking about here. Now that I have become a Christian, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will not condemn us to hell. He will not condemn us for our sins. It's incredible. But that's not universal. We're not teaching universalism. There's a, there's a, a set of people he's talking about here. And he's very clear in Romans 8... 1 through 14, this whole section, who he's talking about. It's not every human being. It's not every, every person that draws breath. We're not universalists. There's a specific category of people that he's talking about. We would call them Christians. But he's going to talk about what that looks like. Now, this is what I want to say to you. Sanctification is essential to identifying yourself as a justified person. If there's no sanctification, there hasn't been justification. Putting it simply, if you're not seeing an increasing pattern of holiness in your life, it's very likely, we can say it that way, that you've not received forgiveness of sins. And if you've not received forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ, then there is condemnation on Judgment Day for you. See, that's what he's saying. But now he's speaking it much more positively. For those that are Christians, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see that language? That's the language of spiritual unity. We are in Christ. That's what happened when you trusted in him. Like a wedding. You made a vow, a promise. He made one to you. And you are, you're, you're married together spiritually in a mystical union so that his death became your death and his life, your life. And along with that, the imputation, his righteousness became yours. Your sin and your wickedness became his. It's a beautiful thing. For those who are in Christ Jesus... There's no condemnation. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. So the law of sin and death 
is God's holy law, his moral law that stands apart from us, above us, and that had the right to condemn us to hell. That's the law of sin and death. God's moral law, and combined with perhaps the law by which we lived our lives, we'd say the law of the flesh and the history we had apart from Christ. This is what the law does. Apart from Christ, it would send you to hell. You have been set free from the law like that. Now, the law is no longer your enemy now. The law with its, its teeth, the law with its, its, uh, its condemnation, its righteous condemnation, that's done forever. Jesus took care of that for you. You cannot stop saying thank you for that. It's incredible. He stood under the wrath of God for us. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, that's what we have now, something called the law of the spirit of life. What does that mean to you? The law of the spirit of life. So we as Christians, there is a law for us. There is a way of life, we could say, a pattern. And we're going to see more about that, but we're not lawless beings now. There's a different kind of law, though. It's the law of the spirit of life. And it works like this. Um, the spirit makes, let's take the positive commandments, love God with all your heart, love your neighbors as yourself. The spirit writes that in you makes you delight in it, makes you energetically start to do it. And he's going to keep doing that as you grow. And then at glorification, he's going to consummate that in you. So you'll spend eternity loving God and loving others. That's the law of life. And, and the, the old law was powerless in that it didn't get into you, into your heart and change you at all. It just stood outside of you and told you what you should be and do. And told you the penalty if you didn't be it or do it. That's the law of death, and it couldn't help. It was powerless, Paul says. Why? Because it was weakened by you. There's nothing wrong with it. A glorified saint in heaven would have no problem with the law of death or whatever, because he or she would keep all of its precepts. But we couldn't keep it, didn't keep it, because in Adam, in the flesh, we couldn't do it. And he's going to talk in a minute about why. It has to do with the mind, the mind of the flesh. We couldn't, we didn't delight in it, we couldn't do it. So that's what he's saying. What the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of the flesh, so to speak. In other words, he looked like any other sinful man. There was no difference. He, he wasn't walking around radiantly glorious. But what a glorious being he really was. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. And I really think John, when he's writing that, I don't think he was talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. That was part of it. But that's not his, that was not his ordinary pattern in his days in the flesh. Jesus, I mean. He looked like anybody else. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So it was in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he wasn't sinful. He just looked like a normal human. Does that make sense? He just looked like an ordinary person. God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of the flesh to be a sin offering. So that's not the only reason he came, but he, he was given a body so that that body could die on the cross. He was, he was human so that he could die in our place. So he became the sin offering. That's how he took away the, the punishment of the law of sin and death. He, he, he did that. And in that, in that way, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that, in other words, that decisive moment on the cross, that's, that's our condemnation that we deserved in Jesus. We are condemned, but in Jesus. That makes sense? So we step up, we step into his death on the cross, and that's where we get uh, the righteous penalties that we deserve. But it didn't come on us, it came on Jesus. And in that way, that's the condemnation. He condemned sin by dying on the cross, 
in order, now here's the key, look at verse four, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. What does that mean? Yeah, I actually believe, I think there's two aspects to it here, okay? One is positionally, God sees us as perfectly righteous. Why? Because Jesus perfectly was righteous. He obeyed all the precepts of the law day by day. Jesus said these words, think about this, I always do what pleases him. Think about that. I mean, that was, that was not an exaggeration. Every moment of my life that I've lived in the body, I have pleased my heavenly father. And you get that as a gift. Isn't that incredible? That is your righteousness. But that's not all it means here. But it also means in order that we might live out the precepts of the law by the power of the Spirit. So that now comes to what some call the third use of the law, something like that. The law tells us how to live. The law tells us the best kind of life we can live as Christians. So let's just go again to the the two great commandments. The best kind of life you can live is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbors yourself. You can't do any better than that. That is the best life you can live. So we're not set free from that, not at all. We come back to that now and say, oh God, do that in me today. Would you you just work in me a heart of love that loves and, and, and exalts you, Heavenly Father, and that loves my neighbor and is willing to sacrifice for my neighbor, you know that if you live that out by the Spirit, you cannot live a better kind of life. So I, I'm going to take both of them. The, the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us positionally by imputation, but now the righteous requirements of the law are going to be fully met in us increasingly by sanctification. Does that make sense? So little by little, we're going to see that. Those who do not walk according to the flesh, he says, or live according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Now we're going to get to the third kind of main chapter here in sanctification, the power of the Spirit. We're not on our own here. The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, has been given to us to enable us to do this. We're not on our own. And so we're going to get to Romans 8.13. That's the negative side, but the Spirit has a powerful role to sanctify us. All right, any questions about this first section, Romans 8, 1 through 4? I'm really just exegeting, walking through Romans, Romans 8 here. That's all that's going on. Question. It's imperfect. If that's what you're getting at, I'll testify. It's imperfect. I agree. You don't even fully meet the law, so it's like, how, how can But it's in order that it might. That's the thing. The, the, the language is that that's the goal. There's an upward call of God in Christ Jesus that Paul talks about in Philippians, right? And that upward call of God is be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the Lord knows better than we do that we're not going to fully meet it, but that's the upward call. So I'm going to take both. Um, if you want to just say it's totally imputation, I can see that. But we're definitely in the sanctification section here in terms of walking. Like whenever you see the word walk, I know the NIV there has live, but that, that walk, what is that word? In order that, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. What does the word walk mean to you guys? Daily activities, it's your lifestyle. So I think it's reasonable for us to, to look to a godly lifestyle. And all I'm saying is if you're saying, okay, I want to have a godly lifestyle, God, have you given me any, any, uh, any pattern uh, or laws by which I can know a godly lifestyle. Yeah, you're going to end up finding it in the Ten Commandments and in the Two Great Commandments and other commandments. And there are all kinds of commandments, friends. How many commandments does Paul give to the churches? (laughs) How many commandments about marriage and, and, and parenting and prayer and finances? And I mean, it doesn't end. So the law is bigger than we think. It's just a lot of expectations. And, and so when, God, when Paul says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, do you call that a law? I do. He's a, it's a, and, and so that's a righteous requirement of law. I want to fully meet it, 
But anyway, so that's why I would say it's an upward call of God. Let's keep going. Look at verses 5 through 11. Somebody read that for us. Romans 8, 5 through 11. All right, friends, you know that we could spend two or three hours on those verses. All right, but I just want to give you the big picture. I think, you remember how Jesus said very famously in the Sermon on the Mount, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So there's two roads Two destinations, two ways to live. Does that make sense? These verses go into far greater detail on what those two roads look like, on what the person traveling to heaven, what his life is like, and what the person who's traveling to hell, what his life is like. And he focuses especially on the mind, the thought process, the thinking. Do you see that? The mind of the flesh right? Versus the mind of the spirit, the mind controlled by the sinful nature versus the mind controlled by the spirit. So why is there such a focus here on the mind? Or what does that teach you that there's such a focus on the, on the mind here? Sure. Second Corinthians 10, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And then he says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we're ready to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So, all right, so what it, what it, why such a focus on the mind here? I would say this is the biggest difference between us and animals, is the ability to reason, the ability to understand abstract concepts by language, the ability to accept commands and understand them and keep them or not. I mean, there's other differences, but I think it's the thought process. It's within our minds that we are able to please God and serve him or not. And so both God, uh, the Spirit, and Satan are battling for control of your brain, for control of your mind. And so it's, that's, that's the battleground. So as you think, so you will live. If you have sinned, you have thought wrongly first. So whenever you sin, trace it back to what thinking you were doing that was evil. There's some evil thoughts, self-pity, uh, a faulty understanding of cheap grace, maybe, uh, a certain wicked forgetfulness of past outcomes in that same area. But there's a, a, a whole arrangement of faulty thinking that led to the sin. And Satan helps it along, but we've got our own thoughts. We've got our own thoughts. So he's, he puts the ideas in our mind, but we pick up on them. We've got pride, we've got desires, evil desires, so it's us. I agree, I think so. Uh, you know how Jeremiah said, the heart of man is wicked and, and desperately wicked and it's deceitful. Who can understand, beyond cure, who can understand it? I mean, yeah, and that's what we're trying to get redeemed out of. That's what we're trying to be sanctified out of, that twisted, deceitful mind. That's what we're struggling with here. So, yeah, so look at, just walk along with the words. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what that nature desires. That's the non-Christian. We're dealing with non-Christian versus Christian. Don't, don't be confused here at all. We're not talking about the carnal Christian or the immature Christian. It's decisively you're Christian or you're not a Christian. And so non-Christians who live according to the flesh think about things of the flesh all the time. That's, that's, what, that's what characterizes the non-Christian life. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit are thinking about what the Spirit desires. 
Now, it's just an amazing thing. It's like, I don't do that like I should. It, the, the thing is, we know that we're messing up and we know that we are acting like pagans when we think like that. But if the Spirit is in you, He is controlling you in some marvelous way. He's never going to let you go. And he's infinitely wise and infinitely powerful, but there's a dynamic, a cooperation going on between us and the Spirit, which is immensely frustrating. <laughs> we'll get to it in verse 13, but there's a partnership. If you, by the Spirit, mortify. See? So there's this partnership going on. And I can guarantee you the Spirit's going to hold up his end of the bargain. What about you? How's that going? I actually think this is part of the whole point of sanctification, to find out how pathetic you really are. I'm not trying to be insulting, but at the end, when you're laying in your deathbed, you're going to be thinking about justification and not sanctification, probably. You're going to be saying, thanks be to God, I was delivered by faith in Christ and not by my works. None of us wants to stand there clinging to our sanctification righteousness, our best days. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I'll take my 17 best days and cobble together a garment in which I'm going to stand. Do you really want that? You're not going to survive. You know it's not good enough. And yet, here it is. We've got this, the Spirit is in us. Go ahead, Bob. What happened? How did Satan get me? Exactly. All right, so the mind of the flesh is death. But the mind uh, uh, controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. What does that tell you? The mind of the flesh, hostile to God, does not submit to God's law. It cannot submit to God's law. What, what do you learn about it? Which Again, we're talking about non-Christians. Okay? This is a, a, almost like Bob was saying, an autopsy or, or a deeper investigation of what depravity looks like. Okay? Anyone else? The mind of the flesh is... What, is, what does it mean to you, hostile to God? All right, against God, enemies. Paul says in Colossians, you were enemies in your minds as shown by your evil behavior. You, you didn't love the law. All right, well, here's the thing. If you can join with Paul in Romans 7, 7 saying, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Do you not see what a work of grace has happened in you? If, if you actually love Psalm 119, 176 verses celebrating how beautiful God's law is, if you read that and say, well, this is a great psalm. Um, you can say, I'm not living it, but I just want you to know, I think it's a great psalm. <laughs> you know, I meditate on your law through the watches of the night. As soon as the sun comes up, I'm singing praise for your law. It's, but if you at least can say, I get it, though. I can see it, and I yearn for that, and I wish it were more true of me 10 years from now. You are you're born again, and God's worked in you that delight. There's got to be other indications, but it means God has worked a change. You're no longer hostile to God's law. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I just there's so many things, like in counseling, people struggling with sin, guys struggling with internet pornography, different things, and it's hard, and it's, oh, I mean, we're all yearning to be free. But... I just want to start with this. Do you, I'm going to try to find out, does he in his inner being delight in God's law? Or another way to put it, does he hunger and thirst for righteousness? Is he yearning for the day when he'll be free? And so then I want to say you have hope because the Spirit's at work in you. And what he's going to do is he's even going to take your failures and make you so hate them and remember them and learn from them and be stung by God's disciplines in relation to them that you increasingly put them to death. That's what's going on here. That's the dynamic. But the, the non-Christian 
is hostile to God's law. He cannot see, he doesn't delight it, he cannot submit to it. It's impossible. Those controlled by the flesh, it says, cannot please God. So that, you see then in evangelism, well, you know, I'm just hoping my good works outweigh my bad. What is the, those controlled by the flesh cannot please God tell you about all that? You have no good works. None of the, the when you gave to, gave to United Way, 50 bucks last, last year, that wasn't pleasing to God. <laughs> I know it's a shock, but it'd be good for you to know that now before you find out on Judgment Day that God was not pleased with anything you did. I mean, think about what was said of the world before the flood, that God was grieved because the thoughts of men were only evil all the time. This is saying about the same thing, isn't it? The thoughts of non-Christians are only evil all the time. You're like, well, that can't be. Look, I'm not saying total depravity means we're as wicked as we possibly could be or as wicked as a genocidal German dictator or something like that. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is there's nothing in you that's pleasing to God because you're doing it all apart from God and apart from Christ. And so none of the good works, even though in of themselves it was better that you, you helped up the old woman who slipped and fell on the ice, that's the right thing to do, but it still wasn't pleasing to God, not on your behalf. He didn't see it as a righteous work. So it cannot, those controlled by the flesh cannot please God. You, however, this is just one of these great verses. You, however... Verse 9, are controlled not by the flesh, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, that's a very strong statement. It's like, Paul, you really don't know me, do you? <laughs> I'm struggling with sin, brother. I, I really am. I don't feel like I'm... But he's asserting this. this is, if you are a Christian, you are controlled not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. What does that mean to you, and how should it give you hope? Absolutely, absolutely. More, more thoughts on this. You are actually being controlled. If you're a Christian, I'll just put it this way. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit's controlling you. That's about what the verse is saying, isn't it? Holy Spirit's in charge. He's controlling you. And you're like, I have lots of evidence to the contrary. <laughs> how, would you, how would you put that together? Your, your faulty, spotty record in sanctification, but this straight assertion that if the Spirit's in you, He's controlling you. Amen. It's true. Um, he is uh, navigating your ship through lots of choppy waters, lots of difficulties, and you're causing the difficulties because we're talking about your sin nature. You are the chop. You are the hurricane. You're the storm. You. <laughs> but he is, the Holy Spirit is peaceful and serene while he navigates the ship. He's like, we're on, we're on course. Amen. And what I'm intending in sanctification, I will achieve. I mean, and you think about that, it's like, man, that's so comforting. And it doesn't mean let's sin all the more that grace may increase. What he's saying is the Spirit knew very well what we're getting. He knows better than you. The Spirit is effectively saying concerning your flesh, I have more to say to you, more than you can now bear. It's worse than you think. We've got a long way to go here, but we're on, we're on course. And the Spirit is controlling. He's not going, let's put it this way, He's not going to lose this fight. Christ is going to raise you up on the last day. He's going to finally save you. And the Spirit who has been dispatched by God the Father and Christ the Son to do this in you, He's not going to fail. And that's pretty powerful when you think about that. So, fundamentally, the Spirit is controlling you if He's in you. He's not a loser. He's not passive. You stand at the fork in the road, binary, sin or don't sin. Either way, He's going to win. It's just an amazing thing. Now, it's better not to sin. Believe me, I'm, I, you know, it's not where, I, I'm, what I'm saying is where sin abounds, the Holy Spirit abounds all the more, okay? But it's better not to sin. 
So don't, don't, because that's the very thing we, we dealt with in Romans 6, right? Oh, well then, if the Spirit's so sovereign, whatever, and he's, he's like, don't think like that. That's how the flesh thinks. But he's, he is going to win. If the Spirit's in you, he's not in you to lose. He's not in you to, to be passive and, and not know what to do and, and be flummoxed and frustrated and say, boy, I've, I'm sanctifying a lot of people, but you are top of the list of most frustrating people on planet Earth right now. It's like, doesn't matter. The f- you might be, actually. But <laughs> I don't know. There's got to be somebody that's number one on the list. We'll never know. But at any rate, if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in that person, the Spirit is going to win. That's all I'm saying. Now, we can cause ourselves a lot of grief. We can, we can greatly reduce our rewards on Judgment Day. There's a lot of penalties to sin. It's really sad. Um, but the Spirit is, if the Spirit's in you. But if the Spirit's not in you, then what can we say about you? You're not a Christian. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. So you see how black-white binary this is? He's making just strong assertions. And they're just true even though they don't feel true to us. So don't disparage the third person of the Trinity. He's not a loser. He knows exactly what he's doing, but it's still in every case when temptation comes. In every case, it's better by the Spirit to put the temptation to death. In every case. So let's keep going. You, however, are controlled not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Yet your spirit is alive or life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. All right, let's just go to verse 11. What is that talking about? If the spirit's in you, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, what what then? What did verse 11 say is going to happen? He'll give life to what? Your mortal body. Oh, how's he going to do that? By giving you a really good day in the body? Boy, I feel, I feel unusually energetic today. I really feel good. I think I actually could, I, I think I could run that 10K. Is that, is that what this is talking about? Through his spirit. Uh-huh. How does he give life to your mortal body? There you go. <laughs> He's going to raise this mortal body up out of the grave. And that body that he's going to raise, it's sown a perishable body. It's going to be raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's going to be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's going to be raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It's going to be raised a spiritual body. That's what you're going to get. I really think Romans 8.11 is talking about our future resurrection from the dead, which is the finish line of our salvation. So he, the Holy Spirit, will get you there. And nothing can stop it. Do you see that? Jesus says it in John 6. I will raise him up at the last day. And you're like, wait a minute. I thought the Spirit's going to... Or him who raised Jesus. Is it God the Father? Yes. God the Son? Yes. God the Spirit? Yes. The triune God will raise your body. And nothing can stop it. So that's so encouraging. That's why today's so, today such a happy day. It's not just that this great hero, this great man did some great thing 2,000 years ago. It's that we benefit. We are in. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm gonna, I'm, if I'm not careful, I'm going to go ahead and preach my sermon right now because I'm so excited. All right, so do you see these strong assertions now in verses 5 through 11? Any questions about it? If the Spirit's in you, he's going to win. Go ahead. Thank you for... I, I did not pay him to ask that question, but that is a great segue right into mortification. That's, that's it. One thing I want to say, because we're, we're going right there to answer, because it's a cooperation. Our effort is essential to sanctification. 
It's essential. That's what makes it so complex and so frustrating and, and all that. But not only is it not required in justification, it's repugnant. It's, it's repugnant to God. If you try to bring your good works for justification, you'll be thrown out of court or condemned immediately. There's just, we, we, it, but that's what people always try to do. That's the essence of all the non-Christian religions in the world is my self-effort paying for my sins. So absolutely, our self-effort is, is repugnant to God and rejected in justification. But it is of the essence of sanctification. <laughs> And people just stumble on this over and over. They're like, well, you're telling, me to, you're telling me that I have to work on my salvation. It's like, yeah, I can quote you the verse. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. There's the cooperation. It's exactly where we're going. All right. Um, also, one last thing about Romans 8, 5 through 11. It's a battle for the mind. The Spirit is working in your mind. So after you sin, He gets you to, as Bob was saying, trace it back to faulty thinking and repent from it. Repudiate that faulty thinking. You don't deserve that sin. How, how did you think you deserved that sin? Or that there would be no consequences for that sin? Or that I'm okay with that? How did you think that? How could you think that? And, and so you have to get to the point where you think like the Spirit does. And I would go beyond that. I would say you have to get to the point where you emote like the Spirit does. He's an emotional being. And doesn't it say... Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. What does that mean? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. How do we grieve the Spirit? Does the Spirit grieve over some of our sins, most of our sins, or all of our sins? All of them. And so, does He want you also to grieve after you've sinned like He does? Yes. But like Bob was saying, I think that takes time. I think we hurry too fast. It's like, hmm, I'm sending the Spirit's not happy with me. I think I know why. All right, slow down. Slow down. James chapter 4. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Don't have a party tonight. Don't feed the flesh tonight. Stop, pray, weep, confess, get real. That's essential to sanctification. It will have no part in heaven. No grieving in heaven. Because we'll be done. But now we need to grieve. And we don't. I think people just skip it. They just go on, thank you, God, I'm forgiven. Thank you, I confess my sin. I do it too. But to slow down and say, what did Satan do to snare me? What faulty thinking? And, and then ask this question, Spirit, how do you think about it? And then beyond it, how do you feel about, about it? Well, I'm grieved. It makes me sad. I mean, you think about the word grief. What do we use? What is that word attached to when you think about grieving? Like a funeral. It's a significant sorrow. And, and it's an infinite mystery of the triune God of the third person of the Trinity. He has vast sorrow over our transgressions, over our sins. And we underestimate him. All right, so let's go on now. Romans 8, 12 through 14. We'll barely touch on Owen today, but we'll get, we'll get into it a little bit. But again, I don't grieve. I don't, I don't, um, I don't regret any time we spend understanding Romans 6, 7, and 8. Any time we spend walking is better than any time we spend on Owen if it's choice. But we'll get, get to Owen even right now. So I'm going to read Romans 8, 12 through 14. All right, so verse 12, very strong verse. We have an obligation, or you could say simply, we are debtors. We have a debt. All right? What's really interesting is Paul says that he has a debt twice in the book of Romans. I think it's really interesting. At the beginning, he says, I'm under obligation both to Greek and non-Greek, both to the wise and the foolish. He says, that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So he goes from that debt, a sense of debt, to gospel preaching. You see that? His debt and how he discharged it in Romans 1 is by preaching the gospel. He owes the gospel to lost people. See that? Here, this is a different kind of debt. What debt is he talking about here? We, have an, uh, we are debtors. What is, he, what is he referring to here? It's not to the flesh. All right, then what is it? What is the debt? Well, let's keep it simple, all right? We have a debt to God to be holy. I think that's just keep it simple. We have a debt to be sanctified. We have a debt to put sin to death by the Spirit. That's how you discharge it. Do you not see how this is the two journeys, guys? We have a debt concerning the external journey, and we have a debt concerning the internal journey. You owe God the gospel. You owe other people, owe other people uh, the gospel. Let's keep it uh, simple there. And then you owe holiness. We are debtors, he says. Now, I understand the debt language is difficult. It's like Christ pays every debt. What does that mean? People sometimes just say, all right, obligation. I, I, I have a sense of, and, and you, you can't in, in the Christian life, even though you have this sense, always Christ paid debt, uh, the Christian life's not a mortgage that we're paying off. I understand all that. That's a bad way to think. Uh, John Piper wrote a whole book on this called Future Grace. It, it, you know, we're not trying to pay down a debt here. I get all that. But still there's this you owe or you ought or you should language given to Christians. So whenever you have O or O, go ahead. Yeah, it's complicated. And, and, and for me, I, I don't want to plumb the depths of it, but there's a sense of duty or responsibility. Um, you know, you want to, but there's also, like we would say, just good manners. If, if you are hosted very, very well and lavishly at someone's home, you just feel like you owe it to them to say thank you. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that sense of social obligation. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I just think it's interesting, the debt. He said, we have an obligation. Let me tell you something. You don't owe the flesh anything. You spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. You spent enough time sinning. You don't owe the flesh anything. Uh, four, if you live according to the flesh, what's going to happen? You'll die. And I'm, I'm telling you, he's not meaning physical death here. I really believe that. I think he's really talking about eternal condemnation. All right? If you live according to the flesh, if you live that other kind of life that we've been describing, you will go to hell. You'll be condemned. But, conversely, if by the Spirit you put to death or mortify the deeds of the flesh, you will live. That means go to heaven. But it means more than that. I think it means live a robust, full spiritual life now that leads to heaven. It's, it's, it's not either or. We get both. You get a good life here on earth, and then you go to heaven when you die. So what does that tell you about mortification? If you don't mortify, what? You're not a Christian. If you do mortify, you'll have the blessed, most blessed possible life you can have here on earth, and you'll spend eternity with God in heaven. So mortification must be important. Oh, yes, it is. If you, by the Spirit, do mortify or uh, put to death the deeds of the flesh, uh, deeds of the body, you will live. And then verse 14, because, I'm saying that because, those who are led by the Spirit of God, these, and I think we would think in our mind, these only are the sons of God. In other words, if you're not being led by the Spirit in the way I'm talking about here, you're not a child of God. But if you are led by the Spirit in the way I'm talking about here, you are a child of God. And, and just in the immediate context here, what is the Spirit leading us to do? 
obey the law or write write immediate context, mortify. He is leading you, friends, into battle. He is getting you dressed for battle. You know, Ephesians 6, put on the spiritual armor. He is getting you ready for battle every day. He is waking you up and saying, today you have to fight. That's what he's doing, and that's the leadership. That's how he's leading you to heaven. Follow me. And he's saying, get up and fight. Be a warrior. I've fought the good fight, Paul said. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. What, what's the good fight? Uh, I, I hate non-Christian pigs. Oh, I'm fighting the good fight. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. I, can I tell you what the good fight is? Let's, let's go through Romans here. Let me tell you what the good fight is. All right. No, I mean, the good fight is mortifying sin by the Spirit. So now we're at it. So turn and look at Owen, and we'll spend about five minutes with Owen. We'll pick it up next time. All right. He gives us Romans 8.13. Romans 8.13 is his jump-off verse on the mortification of sin and believers. KJV, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So that was the text that Owen was writing from, the authorized version, King James. Um, New American Standard would have it this way. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death uh, the deeds of the body, you will live. And again, the stakes cannot be higher. I, I don't think I'm wrong when I say live is heaven and die is hell. So just stop for a moment. Do you not realize how dangerous it is then to be a nominal Southern Baptist in the Bible Belt that doesn't seem to know anything at all about mortification? I mean, it's scary. It's just scary. People who have dispensed with sanctification, they're once saved, always saved, walked the aisle years ago, or went to a Billy Graham thing, prayed the prayer, and yeah, I'm, I've been told I can't lose my salvation. It's like, have you read Romans 8? I mean, there's got to be a principle of mortification. Uh, believe me, I know it's imperfect. I know we're, we sin every day. But there's got to be this fight. If there's no fight, there's no spirit. If there's no spirit, there's no life. You, you're not a Christian. The Spirit's going to lead you to fight. All right, so observations on the text. A duty prescribed, the duty is mortify the deeds of the body. The persons to whom it is prescribed, ye. Okay. <laughs> we're just going pedantically through the verse, but this is Owen. I mean, he's like, we're not leaving anything to chance here. If ye, all right? If there's a promise next to that duty, ye shall live. The cause or means or performance of that duty is the Spirit, if ye through the Spirit or by the Spirit. And then there's a conditionality to this whole thing. Duty means promise contained, etc. The word if. That leads us to a sense of the uncertainty of the event. Thus the condition is absolutely necessary to the outcome. All right? If you mortify, you will live. There is, I think, a sense if you do not mortify, you will not live. I think that's, that's actually true. But the flip side, let's keep it positive, there is a certainty of the outcome of the connection. If you mortify, you will most certainly live. So that's what I said a few minutes ago, the Spirit is going to win. If you mortify, you will live. And so since I'm going to live, I'm knowing I'm going to mortify. Since that's required. So get ready to mortify. You're already doing it, but, but this is exactly the kind of life you should be living. Don't expect it to be easy. Expect it to be fight and say th a fight and say this is the Christian life. I'm ac actually expecting more of a fight than ever before because I came to this BFL class, and now I've got to have even more fight. Yes, even more fight than you ever had before. 
because there's more sin than you think there is. It's just we need to fight, fight, fight. Let me just pause and tell you again what I think mortify means. It means gradually weaken the principle of specific sins, patterns of sins, by not doing them. By not doing them. Death by starvation is our strategy here. We're going to surround the sin with a besieging army. We're going to deny it food and water. And we're going, to, we're going to see it get weaker and weaker and weaker. Or the rear view mirror approach. Have you ever passed somebody who's driving 41 miles an hour on an interstate? Or maybe you just get in behind them. Maybe you drive 41 miles an hour on an interstate. But you pass them, and I like watching them fade in the rear view mirror. Fade. Like, like a, a rock on a can, canoe. You're going by, and, and then you're just looking back. And it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I just do that. You're like... Pastor, that's not safe. You should be looking straight ahead. Well, I just glance back. But the idea is the longer it's been since you violated your conscience in that specific area, the weaker that sin will have a hold on your soul. Like Pluto has a gravitational pull on planet Earth, just not much. <laughs> all right, and so all I'm saying is wouldn't it be good to get to that Pluto level with certain sins that are troubling you now. Well, the way you get there is by putting temptations to death, individual temptations, those you can do. Like Joseph leaving Potiphar, running for his life, you can run and escape. God's going to provide a way of escape for you. The more you run through that way of escape, the stronger you'll get in that area. That's what mortify means by the Spirit. So I just want to give you a sense of where we're going. But put it this way, if, like saying to a sick man, if you take such a potion... I just love the way the Puritans talked about medical things, like the leech. That's a lot of fun. Bloodletting. Anyway, but if you take such a medicine or such a remedy, you will be well, but you need to take it. There's a conditionality and a certainty. So there is an absolutely certain connection between mortifying deeds of the body and living. So let's emphasize here who must mortify. You have to mortify. Who are they? Well, they're people of whom it is spoken. There's no condemnation. People for whom there's no condemnation, they need to mortify. People of whom it is spoken, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Uh, people of whom it is spoken that they are made alive by the Spirit of Christ. Those are the ones who need to mortify. And so here, we're, we'll finish with this, this statement by John Owen. Can someone read it? Beginning with the words, the choicest believers. There's an obligation here. That's the language of obligation. You ought to mortify. And what does he mean by the choicest believers? Of all the believers, these are the choicest ones. What does he mean by that? Cream of the crop. So there's a how much more argument. If they need to do it, we, we need to do it more because we don't have a lot of sins in the rearview mirror. We are, we are struggling badly with certain sins and all that. Well, you need to mortify all the more. But he's saying it doesn't matter. Almost the language doesn't make a difference. If you're still in the body, you need to mortify. And Paul would say, if I leave off mortifying, I'm in immediately in trouble. All right, any questions, comments as we finish up? We're just out of time, but... Um, one question or comment, anybody? Yeah, that would be the Satan side because obviously Satan starts hammering on Jesus at levels we can't even hardly imagine. So I think to some degree we could see that. Uh, he says, you have not yet resisted uh, fighting sin to the point of shedding your blood. So yeah, it's hard. I mean, fundamentally, one of the things we need to understand is mortification involves suffering. Mortification involves suffering. It's hard, hard to do. So Ben, would you close in prayer, brother? Thanks. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes 
and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.